0: Good morning. Good morning. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Sam. I'm the high school and college pastor here at Friendship. And uh, it's my pleasure this morning to continue our series called Hope Rising. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter, and there's a lot to cover in this section. So I think we're just going to jump right in. So if you have a Bible, feel free to open up to 1 Peter. And I'll put the reference up on the screen. We're in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 22. Um, if you're unfamiliar, First Peter is kind of near the end of the Bible. It's right after the book of James. And uh, this morning, I want to start by just reading this whole section to you. Uh, and then we're going to kind of start in reverse. We're going to end, start with the beginning and end with the beginning, if that makes sense. I think I might have said those words out of order, but we're just going to keep going. So here we go. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 13-22. and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right. So in this passage, there is a lot. And I wish that we had a couple of hours. So if you're okay with that, I can just keep going. But we don't. So we. I want to really hit all the main points, if possible. Um, but just know that I would really encourage you to continue to study deeper into this after this morning. Uh, But you might have picked up, as I was reading, that near the end there was a couple of verses that are maybe a little bit more confusing, and I would say they are. There's a couple that trip up people a little more often, so I want to start with those, I want to deal with those right away, and then end by what is plain and clear at the beginning of the passage. So let's start, before we even jump back into it, I want to start by talking a little bit about this thing called hermeneutics, which basically means um, how to study the Bible. Uh, When we approach difficult passages, and we're going to come to difficult passages in Scripture, how should we approach them? And this actually is a a good model of just approaching Scripture in general, but I think especially so when we come to things that are maybe a little more difficult, might trip us up. Um, So... uh, Here is five things that I would say to keep in mind whenever we're studying scripture. First, context is key. Context is anything that's supporting information that supports that comes around the thing that you're studying. So uh, a couple different types of context, and there is one typo in this type of context. It says uh, textual. It says literal, but it's supposed to be literary. So you can make that adjustment if you're an avid note taker. So textual, uh, literary. There we go. Did it myself. Cultural, historical, geographical, political, economical. These are all types uh, of context. So depending on the thing that you're studying, the type of context will matter more or less. Right? The the passage has nothing to do with money, then the economical context might not matter as much. The thing when we're studying God's word, that's probably the most important, or, or I would say the three that are most important would be the textual cultural and historical because the reality is that we live in a different day and in a different culture than the one that the bible was written in so there's things that the authors are writing to the people who lived during the time that it was written that they would have understood right away that we just don't we don't catch because i'm not a jewish man who lived in the first century so i don't immediately catch some of the things that are being said but we can do some research we can understand those things by just looking a little deeper Uh, And then textual, that is, so for instance, if we're studying John 3.16, the textual context is anything, the verses that surround verse 16. So you might want to read the rest of John chapter 3, and you'll have a better understanding of what 3.16 is saying. If you read the rest of the book of John, you might understand even more. If you look at other things that John wrote, you might understand a little more, and when we're looking at specifically things from the Bible, the whole of the Bible, so when we're looking at... What what does it mean to be saved? Well, let's look at what the Bible as a whole tells us. That's the textual context. Following me? Okay. So, uh, context is key, especially when we're studying things that are difficult, because if we pull something out of context and go, what does this mean? We might be missing it. The answer might be right there. Okay. Second point, B. uh, We want to pull information out of the text. We don't want to read information in. The big fancy uh, theological words would be we want to do exegesis, not eisegesis if you want to be able to say that to your friends. Okay, there you go. So we want to pull information out. I come to God's word, and it tells me what to believe, not the other way around. I don't come with things to believe, read the Bible, and go, that must mean this belief, and try to shove it into the Bible and make it say what I want it to say. That's not how we read the Bible. We come and we pull information out. It tells me what to believe. Uh, C, the simplest meaning is most often correct. Uh, If there is a simple, plain meaning, most of the time, that is what it means. If you're doing a bunch of mental gymnastics to try to make it say what you want it to say, again, you're probably falling into um, B and putting stuff into it that's not actually there. D, we want to read the Bible literally. This is another area where people get into uh, trouble, is because they, they try to make it say, well, I want this to say something else, so I'm going to make it an analogy. It's probably saying... Most of the time, we can read the Bible, and it literally means what it is literally saying. Now, this is within the context of things like we need to know its literary context. If it's poetry, then the words being used are poetic, and we can read that literally without assuming it's literal, right? We can understand poetry compared to something that's a historical account. So understanding that literary context is important, and the Bible is written in multiple Literary genres, so knowing which genre you read, if you 're in psalm, you might be reading a poem, and so on okay finally god 's word does not contradict itself. We believe that God is truth himself. everything he says is truth, so two truths can 't contradict themselves, and so when we come to something that 's an apparent contradiction, like this says this, but that says that, how does that, that can 't work when we find that. That takes a little more of that extra effort to study, and maybe it's one of those context things that makes us, oh, I didn't see that, now that makes sense. Um, And there's uh, an encouragement to everyone out there. It's been 2,000 years since the birth of Christ, every question that could possibly be asked about the Bible has been asked. If you have a question, if you're like, I don't understand, I must be the first person to have ever struggled, you're not. Everybody has tried to, either has struggled through wanting to know it or has gone through the Bible trying to disprove it, and it still stands. Now, that doesn't mean we have a perfect answer for every single question, but we do have good answers for every question. And today, we're going to approach two passages right now, that one where I think we don't know for sure exactly what it means, and one where we do have a good answer for it. So let's start with... um, Going back to the passage, First Peter three, starting at verse eighteen, it says, "For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. In which he went, so in the spirit he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah." Okay. So we're reading, we're reading, we come to a point where Jesus is is preaching or proclaiming to uh, spirits in prison, and we could be tempted to try to make up an answer or just move on, but what is he talking about here? So before I try to answer this, I want to put up a quote from a guy named Martin Luther, you might have heard of him. Um, He says, A wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I do not know for certainty what Peter means. So I'm going to say this. Martin Luther didn't know for sure. I'm going to kind of stand with him and go, I don't know for sure what the answer to this is. But I do think that there's some good answers that we can come to, and I think we can know the heart of what Peter's trying to do here uh, without having a complete answer. So let me explain. I'm going to put up two answers of what I think are good possibilities of what this means. Um, But before I do, here's what we would need if we wanted to have a complete, perfect answer and go, yep, for certain this is what it means. We would need to know who the spirits in prison are. (laughs) Who are they? Uh, We would need to know what that word proclaim means. We would need to know what uh, the message was spoken, what did Jesus actually say, and when, the timing of when it was proclaimed. If we had a exact answer to all of these, we would know for certain, but we don't know for sure exactly the answers to all these questions. Now, the second one up there, what does the word proclaim here mean? Some of your translations might have said preach, um, because this word can be translated multiple different ways, depending on its context, and so the context, I think, most, "it, it proclaim is, a, is probably the best use, but it can be used to preach as well, and so depending on the way that you read that word, depending on who you think the spirits are, depending on what you think the message was, and when it happened, that will change what you think the answer is. Make sense? Maybe? Okay. Let's keep going then. (laughs) Here's two good answers. Actually, before I put that up, let me say, there's one bad answer. If you're going to do research on your own, I think there's one bad answer to avoid. Um, And that's that some people read this, they say Jesus is preaching... Uh, preaching to spirits in, in prison. And so they go, that means Jesus went to hell to preach to humans from the time of Noah to give them the gospel and give them a chance to be saved. Um, and, and I would say that is a bad answer because con- context, context of the rest of Scripture tells us that we have in this life an opportunity to give our lives to Jesus. And we can either choose that he is Lord or that he's not, but when we die, that we are then subject to judgment. That's how it works. Those who who rejected Jesus, or uh, at the time of Noah, there's an opportunity to be saved on the ark, and those people rejected God's way. I don't think, with the rest of Scripture, that that means that they were then given a second chance after that. So that's a bad answer. We're going to throw that one out. So if you're doing your own study, there's some people who believe that, I'm going to say that's a bad answer, but here's two that I think are good possible answers. The first is this. It could be describing Christ preaching through Noah to those who lived while Noah was building the ark, and now they're in prison. So this would say that the spirits um, are human, that it's talking about back in the day of Noah, that Jesus, kind of like the Holy Spirit lives through us, that Jesus preaching through Noah to those people um, and now those people who rejected it are now in prison. So that's one possibility of what this is saying. The second possibility is that it describes Christ's proclamation of victory and judgment over evil angels that are in prison and they've been in prison since the time of Noah, since that judgment. So uh, a couple reasons why you might pick the second one. the word for spirit is most often used to talk about angels or demons it 's spirits that way. It can be used about human spirits, but um, most of the time if we 're talking about a human spirit there 's a uh, an addition some 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 way of telling us that it 's talking about a human spirit which isn 't in this text, but it still could be um, and so you might lean a little bit more that way. You might also lean a little more to number two because of the word proclamation um, that it 's if you're going to say preaching the gospel, you might use a word like evangelize. Um, but the word here for preach or proclaim um, could lean to kind of like in a military sense. When somebody wins a victory, they proclaim victory over those that, they, that they've defeated and to those um, who are on their side that they've won the war. Um, so it does make a lot of sense that it could be Jesus proclaiming the victory um, after the cross that he has won, that he is, now over, he is over sin and death, that he has won the victory. So those are the two answers, and I'm sorry, because this probably leaves you going, wait, explain more, because both of these I could, I could spend a, a whole morning on telling you why people would believe one or the other. But let me just say this. Here's two that I think I could stand behind and go, sure, that makes sense. And I think both point us to something that Peter's trying to do. I think Peter's trying to encourage his readers. I think that When he's talking to, and we're going to read this in a second, in the beginning, he's sharing about suffering, doing good and yet suffering, sharing the gospel. And he goes, hey, in the time of Noah, there was was many who were told and given an opportunity to be saved and yet rejected it, right? Think about Noah. And so if it's number one or number two, either way, you can say, there is an encouragement that despite what people might respond to you, that in the end, even if it's death, even if you're put to death for, and that's the kind of suffering you experience, that Jesus has the victory over sin and death, that he is, he is the one who is with you. And so you can have that encouragement that in the midst of anything that you're experiencing, that you're with Christ and that you have accepted that message and that he has defeated sin and death and he's with you. So I think that's the point of what's being said, regardless of the exact meaning of what that's being said. I think either way, in either of these answers, it's supposed to be an encouragement to those. Um, if you want to talk more about this, we can definitely do that later. But for the sake of this morning, let's keep going, because there's another verse in here, uh, just a little bit after this, that also can be a little bit tricky. And I think there's a very clear answer to this one. So let's jump down to verse 21. So uh, this kind of leads into it, right? We're talking about Noah. And then it says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So if you were here a few weeks ago, we had baptism, and we said, baptism doesn't save you. And then you come this week, and you're like, wait a minute. It says baptism saves. So let's talk about it, because... I think this is one area where, one, textual context is important, um, and us understanding historical context is important. Um, so let's ask two questions. First, what is the connection between baptism and salvation? It's, it's there in the text, so let's not ignore it. What's the connection between baptism and salvation? And then the second question would be, what is the connection between baptism and Noah, the, the story of Noah? Why is he using it as an example? So, I want to start by explaining the second question, which was Noah. How does Noah fit into this? And I think this is simple. Um, It says during the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, only a few, that is eight, were brought safely through water. Baptism correlates to this. So, what's the connection between Noah and the story of Noah and baptism? Well, I think this. When we look at the story of Noah, You have the whole world is engaging in sin and evil. It says that they did only evil all the time. We think it's bad now. Like, yikes. If everyone did only evil all the time, they're trying to think of new ways to do evil. might feel like we're in a place like that, and then maybe we're heading that way, but bad. It's bad. So God sends a judgment. It's the flood. But he gives an opportunity one way in which you can find salvation. That's through the ark. And so while the ark is being built, Noah's preaching, and he's saying, judgment's coming. If you want to turn and trust in the Lord, you can come in. But only a few, only eight, believed. And so only eight were saved. Only eight went the one way. Now, what is the gospel? That there is a judgment coming, that our sin leads to death, and that there's one way. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Only The only way to the Father is through Jesus. And so if you're willing to trust in him, put your step into, kind of like stepping into the ark, step into faith in him, then you'll be saved. But only a few will be saved. It says that many will not believe, but few will. I think that's the connection between Noah and this salvation story and baptism, that only a few are going to actually say yes, even though it is a good, gracious thing. Now, let's step into then baptism and salvation, because that's probably the part that we're having a bigger issue with. It says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think we just need to read the rest of the verse and understand what he's saying and understand what what context Peter is saying it from to understand what's being said here. He says, baptism, which saves you, not the removal of dirt. He immediately tells us, okay, but, but understand, I'm not talking about a bath. It's not about getting dunked under the water and it cleans you and now spiritually you're clean. It's not about that dunking under the water part. That's not the part of baptism that saves you. What is? It is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That it's by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our identifying with him, that faith in him, that appeal to God, that we are saved. Not not the dunking part. So what's Peter's context? If you go to the New Testament, you see that almost across the board, people believe and are baptized immediately, one right after another. For Peter, the context is pretty clear, that your step of faith to say, I believe, was baptism. They were linked. Uh, In our culture today, we've separated these two things. We've separated this idea of the commitment and the ceremony of baptism, and they're two separate things, right? I committed my life to Jesus, and 10 years later, I got baptized. Um, And so I've made this commitment, but I didn't—it's kind of like—this is not a great example, but Go with me here. It's kind of like getting engaged and then getting married. There's like the commitment of like, yes, I'm in. And then like, but I'm not, I'm full, like now I'm in here with the ceremony of marriage. Like, it's like, wait, isn't that the same thing? Shouldn't they be? And for Peter, they were. They were the same thing. You said, told the gospel, you're a sinner, but Jesus has come. He's died for you. You can believe in him and spend eternity with him in a relationship, renewed with the Father. And he's like, okay, I'm in. How do I say I'm in? Let's get in the water. And you get in the water and say, I I want to repent of my sin, I want to trust in Jesus' as Lord, Dunkum. It that was how it worked. They were in they were intricately linked. So for Peter, he's saying that. Baptism saves when you make the commitment, not the part where you're going under the water, like, although it's important. The ceremony matters, right? It shows people that I identify with Christ, that I go underneath the water to show that I have died to my sin, and I am raised back up to live a new life, walking in the life with Jesus. That, that matters. The ceremony matters. But it's not about the—it's just like how we say, like, it's not about, like, we should— this praying the prayer thing. Like, it's not about the words. It's not about prayer. It's about, is your heart turning from your sin to follow Jesus? Is he your Lord? It's not about the ceremony as much as it is about what is happening in the heart, your faith in Christ. It doesn't mean that the ceremony doesn't matter. Baptism matters. Jesus commands us to be baptized. If you haven't been baptized and you're a believer, we should desire to to say and identify with and to step into that obedience and say yeah I, I want to be baptized I want to show the world that I am His and I identify with Him so I hope that that makes sense is that clear um, baptism as in our faith in Jesus saves so one one just cross reference to kind of give you like hey where else in the Bible does it talk about this Ephesians two eight um, says for so how are we saved for by grace you have been saved through faith this is not of your own doing it is a gift of God not as a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship creating Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them So how are we saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone It's not about works it's not about doing anything it's about faith in him and what Jesus has done Okay So Again, we could probably do an entire sermon on just that, but I want to go back to the beginning now. Um, and so, again, if, if, if you're confused or anything, please, I'd love to chat afterwards. Um, but 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17, has some really clear um, calls and challenges in our life, and so I want to end by going back to the beginning. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? if that should be the lord's will or god's will then for doing evil okay so this passage says do what's good who's going to harm you if you do what's good the reality is if you live out the christian life and you do what is good most of the time you're going to be fine People are going to support that and encourage that. Even the unbelieving world understands if you're doing good things for people, that it's a good thing. However, you're going to find that if you do good things in the name of the Lord, that that will be met with opposition, and probably more and more so as the world turns from allowing that. There's this resistance that, oh, you can do good, just don't, don't talk about Jesus as you do it. So here's the thing. Do good. And who's going, to, who's going to come up against you? Probably nobody, but even if they do, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. There's a blessing that comes. God says, I'll bless you. Even if the world doesn't, you'll be blessed. So here's a couple of points, I think, as we kind of move towards the end here. Our words and our actions matter regardless of the response that we receive. We live in a world that's all about instant gratification, right? I post this thing and you like it, you heart it, you retweet it. I, I want people to like me, to like what I'm saying, to want like to, want to follow me. Um, I, I want to be liked. And I want that instant gratification of that support and the people saying, yeah, great post or great saying, great thing you did. But it sucks us into a potential idol of saying, I care more about what the many say than what The one says. Is my whole life about making God and making Jesus what everybody sees or is it about making them see me? Is it about them applauding and appealing to? Like, Is is it all about me or is it about him? And so our words and our actions, we need to live this out in a way that it doesn't matter what people's response are even if it's suffering. So that begs the question then, does suffering stop us from doing good, and from speaking truth. Honestly, think. like If if I were to meet resistance as I did good or as I spoke truth... Now, all this is speaking truth in love, with grace, right? That's all in the passage. So it's not not saying that there's an excuse for doing it in a poor way, but if we are living in a way where we're saying, I I just want to tell you the truth, I want to love you, I I want to help people, I want to do good... Does suffering stop us? Does persecution stop us? Then we jump down. It says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And there it is again, gentleness and respect. Do you notice that this kind of begs a question? It says, always be ready To make a defense to anyone who asks you about the hope, the reason for the hope that you have. It it assumes that you're doing things that people are going to ask about. It it assumes you're living in such a way that people are going to ask you a question, so you should be ready to answer the question. But that means that we got to be living out something that's going to promote, prompt a question. And so here's probably the hardest question of the day. Does the way you live your life prompt the question about the hope that you have? It's a hard question. But does it? Because here's the reality. Right now, we live in a world with political unrest, with a pandemic, with personal trials that are happening in our lives. We, we, We all deal with these things that are happening in the world. So do you live in a way that Shows forgiveness to people, has grace for people, loves people, that, that you, you do good even if suffering comes back your way. Are, are you a person of forgiveness? Are you a person who, right? Are, are these things that come, do you have hope? In the middle of a season, in a time, in our world, where hope seems like the last thing that you should have, Or do you live with hope? Because if you do, if you do those things, if you have hope, if you have grace for people, if you have forgiveness in situations that don't make sense, guess what's going to happen? They're going to look at you and go, what's wrong with you? What, what, how can you have hope? How can you have joy right now? It doesn't make sense. And that's because it doesn't make sense on our own. Does, it, does your life prompt those questions? I want to give you an illustration real quick. Um, you guys have probably been wondering why there's a jar up here. So I have, I have a jar. And there's something in this jar, and I want you to tell me what it is. I'm going to give you one clue, okay? There's something in this jar. What's in my jar? A magnet. That's right. (laughs) I should have gotten a stronger magnet. All right. I didn't tell you. I didn't open it and show you. But you knew a magnet was in here. Because you know two things. One, you know what a jar can and can't do, and you know what a magnet can do. A jar on its own cannot do this, but a magnet can. So you didn't have to see it to know what was in it. This is what a Christian should look like. I'm just a jar, but I've been given the Holy Spirit in me, and there should be things that people see about my life where they go, huh, that's not how a jar works. That's not Sam. That's, that's the Holy Spirit. There's only one thing that I know that does this. And it's God. Has to be. So do you live in such a way? Are you walking around and people are like, what's up with that magnet? And maybe you spend more time in your devotions and more time in prayer. But are you living in such a way that people see God in you? Are you a magnet in a jar? Let's leave that there. OK. So here's a, a challenge as you leave today. Maybe it's before you leave this room, Maybe it's out in the atrium, maybe it's with your family at home, but here's an encouragement. I would challenge you to ask and answer these two questions with somebody today. How would you summarize the gospel, and how would you share that hope that you have? Just do like a do a mock run through if somebody were to actually ask you what would you say? And I'm not saying now this maybe this is helpful, but you don't have to necessarily memorize a presentation about the gospel to be able to share the gospel. Do you know what you believe? Do you know that Jesus died for you? That he died for the people that you're talking to, that that your sin separates you from him and that you need that Death and resurrection to bring you into his relationship with him that's for now and for eternity. Can you share that with somebody? And can you share that hope that when somebody asks you what's going on in your life, you can say Jesus? Are you able and willing to say it? It helps if you say it often. So say it to somebody in your family, somebody from here. It's, it, this is a safe place to practice this conversation. So that's a challenge today. Do that. Last point is that we live in a world that desperately needs hope. I already mentioned this. The world we live in needs hope. And so Jesus uses this example in Matthew 5. Are you ready and willing to be this light in darkness? Here's the reality of light. Some people in darkness don't want light. It hurts their eyes. They don't want it. But light is always a good thing. And those who understand it, and see it for what it is, are going to want more of it. So, are you light? Jesus says, you don't light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Jesus did not light you with the Holy Spirit. He didn't put a magnet in you so that you'd be put into a jar hidden that nobody can see. He lit you, right? Be lit for all you young peeps. Get lit so that you could go out and people would see the light in you and, and glorify your Father in heaven. So here's the the application. We should be prepared to speak. We should live out good works that honor Jesus even if suffering comes. In fact, we should be prepared for suffering. Jesus promises us that suffering and trials are a part of this world, that they're going to come, and so be ready for those. But take heart because he has overcome the world. Remember that all power and all authority is Christ's. He's victorious one. He has won the day and he is with you. So as we try to speak, he's with us. As we try to live out those good works, he's with us. As we're in the midst of suffering, he is with us. So as we go into one more song, I just want to let you know about our offering, and I want to pray over the offering and also just for you. So, Lord Jesus, right now, I just want to thank you for your word, for the truth in it. God, that you warn us about suffering, you tell us about trials. We know that those things will come, that even when we do good, that there's people who will oppose us But God, we praise you that you are the victorious one, that you have already beat sin and death, that there's nothing to fear, not even death in this world, because we are with you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have that confidence to share with others about the hope that we have in a time in the world right now that needs hope. May we be a conduit of hope. Lord, right now as we go into a time with offering and worship, I pray, God, that you would take whatever is given and use it to build your kingdom, to, to share your gospel. Use it to impact lives so that people would know who you are, to spread that hope. And so, Lord, let us with joy give whatever it is that we can that it would honor you. And I pray, Lord, as we worship now one more time that we would set aside any thing that's happening in our lives to just spend a little time with you to meet with you and to praise you because you are